Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Welcome back. We have part two with Greg Rodden. If you didn't catch the last episode, please do. He is a fellow podcaster. Well, he'll say ex-podcaster, but still very valuable information from Med School Fizz podcast and co-author to our book, Read This Before Medical School. And Greg, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So last time we kind of covered like the fourth year, mostly elective rotations, the away rotations, and just sort of what to think about, what to prepare for while you're going into residency, since we're getting into residency season here. I know a lot of it's already kind of over, but there's still a lot of advice that people need to know going into it. And that's going to start shortly, I think in a couple months from now. And I mean, the first day of residency has got to be kind of stressful. So what are some things that maybe students should look forward to or prepare for when they're going into their first day of residency? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I'll say is that the first day, like it's expected that you feel overwhelmed. You don't even know where the bathroom is, yet you have a nurse asking you to plug in orders for a patient. And you're like, oh man, this just got real. It's totally normal to feel overwhelmed. And in general, especially early on in residency, you're going to be leaning pretty hard on your senior residents that are working with you. You should pretty much always have a senior resident working with you. So you can kind of take heart in that. You're always going to have some kind of, you know, oversight and backup that no one's going to throw you to the wolves, or at least not in today's graduate medical environment. So so we're not thinking like the house of God where you just like walk in and... <laughs> no, and for those of you who have read the house of God, there's some aspects that are like that, but very little of that still holds true today, in my opinion. So yeah, one thing I'll say is orientation is going to feel like it drags on forever. Ours went for like over a week, I want to say. And it was just kind of like, oh my goodness, let's just get to it. And like the vast majority of the learning you do will take place on the job. And that's not just like the mechanics of the job, you know, where you're like figuring out how do I order IV fluids? How do I order this lab test that this specialist wants me to order, but didn't explain what the actual test is or how it's labeled in our system and that kind of thing. And most of the time, you're going to be leaning on your senior residents to teach you how to do that in the moment. And you'll form a very close relationship with a lot of them. Are you going to be besties with all of your senior residents? No. But you will learn a whole lot from them. So that's the first thing that I would say about the first day. The other thing that I would say is, you know, in general, like, unfortunately, yes, you're a doctor now, but you're still the most junior member of the team. So it's going to feel like you're starting from ground zero because you kind of are. So you need to demonstrate that you're willing to work hard. You need to demonstrate that you have a good attitude and that you work well with other people and that you treat your patients well. You know, like no one's going to respond well to you being a diva 
it's not going to serve your patients well either. So remember that you are the low person on the totem pole. And eventually, you know, you'll build your way up. But just take that humble stance from day one and it'll serve you well. It kind of reminds me of the first episode of Scrubs, like four years of undergrad, four years of med school. Then he walks in the hospital. He's like, oh, I don't know. Crap. (laughs) And honestly, that's how I felt. You know, I felt a little lost in my first days and, you know, like thinking about, you know, these super rare diseases that can affect children when it's like, dude, he's got bronchiolitis, like just (laughs) just put him on some oxygen (laughs) and go from there. Okay. And then I would be like, wait, but like, how do I put him on oxygen? And I've never used this thing before. It wasn't in my medical school. Like (laughs) hypothetically, I understand how it works, but I've never actually used the device before. That's another thing that I would strongly encourage you to do on some of your downtime is to just chat a little bit with like your nurses. And if you work with like various techs, like or respiratory therapists or that kind of thing to really dig into the mechanics of what they do day to day. They can teach you a whole lot about stuff that we never learned about. Like the example that comes to mind is like vent settings. A respiratory therapist can teach you so much about how to take care of a patient and about, you know, this is a realistic starting pressure for a vent. And in this situation, I would troubleshoot by raising the rates or adjusting the inspiratory time or, and kind of helping you to think through those kinds of examples. And, you know, obviously ventilators are just one example. Like you can get that from your nurses as well, who, you know, really know the nitty gritty details of how to implement the, you know, quote, orders that you put in. Because at the end of the day, you're the one responsible for those orders. And at some point, you need to know the nitty gritty of how those will be implemented because you're inevitably going to have a nurse or or someone else ask you, okay, well, like, how do I do that? You can't just say, get this done for me. It doesn't work that way when you're a resident. You're the one who needs to figure out how to do it if you don't actually know how to do what you're asking other people to do. So, yeah, that was a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I remember one of my elective rotations was in critical care and pulmonology, which that was interesting that they put them together, but I suppose separate would probably leave the pulmonologist with not a lot to do. But yeah, like the vent settings was something that completely threw me off. He's like, all right, so what are we supposed to do with this thing? Go fix it. I'm like, wait a minute, what? You want me to mess around with the device that someone's currently breathing on? I don't know if I really feel comfortable with that yet. That's where you're either senior residents or like a respiratory therapist or even nurses. A lot of nurses know a lot about vents, how they work and how they should and shouldn't work. You know, lean on anyone who's willing to help you. And how do you get people to help you? You behave in a likable manner, right? You show them respect, you work hard, you just in general treat them well. Yeah, it's amazing what the rest of the staff can really do to benefit your personal growth and education as well. And I know a lot of physicians probably initially at least might 
abuse that privilege or or ignore it. And yeah, they've been doing this for a long time. It's your first time there. Utilize all the resources around you. And the other staff is going to be your best resource because you can read about anything until you know your eyes turn blue and not still really understand how it works. But once they show you, oh, it's it's simple. You do this, this, this. Like, oh, okay. So the nurses, the respiratory techs, all the other techs, like you mentioned, like can be extremely beneficial for your education. So, you know, be nice to them, first off. Become friends with them if you can and learn as much as you can from them because a lot of the times I'm guessing like your residents and your attendings might be too busy and might assume you know something that you don't or it's just going to delay your progress if you don't utilize every resource that's in front of you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what do you think about sub-eyes? I don't know if you did sub-eyes for your uh, fourth year or not, but it's something that a lot of students ask about. And honestly, I'm a little confused about it myself. Like, I know a lot of students that I went to school with that never did a sub-eye and they're in residency. So I guess it's not mandatory, but it can be very helpful if, I guess, if you already have an idea of what you're going into. I mean, I certainly wouldn't do a sub-eye in a field that I wasn't intending on going into. That would be a lot of effort and a lot of responsibility put on you for maybe not as much payoff, I guess. In general, like sub-eyes, they're a chance for you to show off your stuff. And most medical students, and I think I mentioned this in the last episode, but most medical students, you know, are the kinds of people who can show off their stuff. You have a lot to be proud of. You have worked very hard to get to where you are. You know, you just need to show people that. I forgot, we didn't even mention what a sub-I is. It's sub-internship, otherwise known as an active internship. So it's kind of one step below residency, but it's above the normal clinical rotations, right? Yeah, exactly. Like they, in general, they try to treat you as if you're the new intern on the team. Sometimes it gets a little hairy because like you might not be able to enter orders depending on the hospital system that you're at. So you, you know, act like the intern, like coming up with presenting the patient and coming up with the plan. You can't actually just like plug in those orders or sometimes like hospitals will be finicky about documentation. So like they won't let you write the notes or whatever. Oftentimes the way that programs will get around it is like they'll have you write the note in a temporary holding spot or whatever, like a Word document. And then you just transfer that note or like a resident will assume responsibility of that note that you've written and enter it by like literally copy pasting and then adjusting what they need to adjust. Gotcha. All right. So we kind of discussed it's very important to know the rest of the staff and to learn as much from them. But do you have any advice for like actually getting to know them? Like how do you meet the other members of your team and not just the doctor team, but the nursing team, the other techs, the other staff in the hospital in general? What are some good points to like maybe break the ice to get to know them to start learning from them how do you approach that it's interesting so like if you're if you're in in a hospital doing formal rounds so typically the way that the day runs is like you'll show up you'll get sign out on a number of patients you'll go pre-round and look up the vitals from overnight and the lab values after you've pre-rounded, you'll kind of put together your thoughts, put together a plan for the day, and then you'll discuss that plan, present it on rounds with the whole team, right? 
all of that, you know, you're doing your job. You don't really have as much time to socialize. Like you can be, you know, nice in your interactions with the nurse who's taking care of the patient. You can, you know, ask them a general personal question like, hey, how are you doing? How's your family? Uh, you can like, you know, you, you can get to know them a little bit, but you're kind of time crunched in that time period. So you don't have all the time in the world. The time where I have found that it's really valuable is to go back in like the afternoons when you have a little bit of downtime after rounds and just chat with people, just start conversations. Like you've been having conversations your whole life. Like you know how to do that at this point and just get to know people and, you know, get to know their names recognize them when they're walking past you in the hallway. Like hospitals are small places. You're going to get to know people whether you want to or not. There's not that much of a barrier really to getting to know your colleagues. It's just a matter of you going forward and doing it. Sometimes, you know, you can't do that every single afternoon and you may have admissions that you're taking and, you know, those take up a ton of your time or you may be putting out fires with, you know, some of the existing patients that are on your team. But in general, when you're working in a hospital, there's downtime to get to know people. And similarly, in a clinic setting as well, when you're seeing patients in a clinic, you have a few extra moments, you know, in between each patient that you go to see to have those small conversations. Sometimes it can be harder in a clinic because they're basically running from patient to patient to patient all day. And, you know, you're MA or your nurse that's working in the clinic with you might not have as much time to sit down and talk with you because they've got other stuff that they want to get done so that they can go home at the end of the day. There might not be as much downtime is what I'm trying to say in a clinic setting as there is in a hospital setting. But when you're working in healthcare, you're fundamentally working with other people in a very intimate setting. It's impossible to not interact with them. And I guess there's got to be a lot of, you know, bond forming that happens there, whether it be with your fellow residents or with the attending, with the other staff. There's not a lot of downtime, so it does depend on how much you're going to see each individual. But maybe even just in the lunchroom, there's got to be some opportunities to really start forming some bonds that are going to be more helpful later on. It doesn't hurt to try and connect with other people after work as well. I mean, you are entering like a formal work environment. So, you know, it's not the same as like your, you know, study buddies kind of have to treat people in a little bit more of a distanced professional manner. But especially with like co-residents, like it's pretty easy to just, you know, ask to go out for a beer after work or whatever, you know, it's not all that hard. And, you know, with like nurses or with other people who aren't like in your residency cohort, you just kind of gauge the kind of relationship you have with this person. And, you know, if you want to connect with them outside of work, then do it. Go for it. All right. So let's start getting into the actual intern year. So you're walking into the hospital for the first time. Like it's overwhelming. You probably have like a room that you're supposed to meet someone at or a physician you're supposed to find. Just give me a, a general layout, a quick summation of what it's like when you walk into the hospital for the first time. It's going to depend, you know, on the individual hospital that you work at. But, you know, the program that I went to, we had, or the program that, that I'm in, we had a very seamless orientation process. It's also probably harder in the time of COVID. 
to be honest, like, because you can't like get as many large groups of people into rooms together. In general, we had a relatively seamless orientation process. So they showed us where all of the important places were. So I had at least seen these places before. And then, you know, the program itself, thankfully, took care of who do I need to report to on the first day. So like on my first day, I was working a night shift. And and so I knew where the sign-out room was near our cafeteria and then figured out, okay, this is the night senior who's going to be on. So went to go meet up with him. And then we basically just jumped right into it started hearing about the patients that we were going to be assuming care for that day. And we were off to the races and my phone started blowing up from nurses saying, hey, could you adjust this order? Could you, we don't have orders for this. We were told there were going to be orders for this. So blah, 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 blah. And you're just kind of thrown into the fire. But, you know, you've also been in a sense like forged a little bit already by your four years in medical school to know how to handle a few of these situations. You end up asking your senior resident a lot of questions, like we discussed earlier, like how in the world do I actually put in this oxygen order? Or how do I adjust this person's diet? Very, very basic. They really do teach you the very, very basic stuff, the mechanics of how to make a hospital or a clinic run. This episode is brought to you by findarotation.com, where students and preceptors can schedule rotations with ease and security. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform. All right, so let's get into like the educational aspect. We've kind of covered like how to handle the social aspect of your first days of residency and getting familiar with the staff and just kind of preparing for that, but you still have a lot to learn. We're lifelong learners. And I know you mentioned in the past episode, the intern boot camp, for instance, from online med ed, but what are some educational suggestions that you have to make it still efficient while you're working full time, basically? So again, this really depends on the specialty that you're going into. So for example, with pediatrics, we have this thing called prep questions, which are like literally boards prep questions. I think it's like the Pediatric Residency Education Program or something like that is the acronym. I mean, they're the same kinds of things that you would see on like UWorld or whatever, where they'll ask you a question and then they'll provide you some educational material to review once you get the question right or wrong. You know, that's one tool that I use. I try and do one of those questions a day. And then outside of that, sometimes residency programs will have like formal material that you're supposed to review on your own. Other times they'll just do like didactics every week. It just kind of depends. And then also a lot of your, you know, education is going to take place in the clinic or in the hospital working with preceptors. Hopefully your preceptors will provide you as well as just in general, like interacting with patients. Like the vast majority really of your education is going to happen in the moment, working directly one-on-one with patients, working directly one-on-one with your attending physician who's providing you feedback on your plan of care or your presentation. 
or that kind of thing. Or sometimes they'll provide feedback like on a note that you wrote. Okay, so we got like the clinical education there is mostly going to come from the preceptor and your personal experience. And that's the best way to learn. Experiential learning has been proven to you know be so much more efficient than reading something in a book, for instance. But I guess a lot of students are probably also going to have to study for their step three at this point in their education. So what do you really do for that? How do you prepare for that when, again, you're working full time and maybe you have a family and you're just trying to survive and there's so much going on? So not everyone will be able to do this, but what I did was I tried to get my step three done as soon as possible or whatever complex level three done as soon as possible because I didn't want to have to deal with thinking about adult problems while I was training in pediatrics. So I got it done in September, I think was the earliest date that I was able to get. Honestly, the questions are like the exact same as step two or level two. They're the same level of difficulty. They're asking you about the same stuff. Really, the the only difference between step two or level two and step three, level three, is the case scenarios that they have you run through where like you are basically tasked with like managing a patient's problem through like a simulated environment and not like a here's a vignette and here's a question about the vignette kind of scenario. I don't know how the USMLE works because I didn't take the USMLE, but for the Comlex, the way that they did it was they basically gave you like a case scenario and then like a list of labs or a list of action items, which of these would you do? You can pick up to three out of this list of 12 or whatever. And then they'll say, okay, so you chose X, Y, and C. And sometimes it's not the stuff that you chose. And you're like, darn it, clearly I should have gotten a chest X-ray there kind of thing. And this is what the results show. So with those, like there's really not that much that you need to prepare for. I would just run through the sample cases that are on the NBME or NBME website to get a sense of like what those cases will look like. But I don't think there's really that much like special preparation that you need to do for those. Also, I think that UWorld has sort of its own version of those. If I hope I'm not mistaken on that one, but I think that UWorld does for at least for the USMLE. So yeah, and then beyond that, I did read, also the question is like, when do you do this preparation? So for me, since I wanted to get it done as early as possible, I took the latter couple of months of my fourth year to like dig through first aid for step three. And again, it's really the same thing as step two or level two in terms of question difficulty and question content. Okay. So the content's basically the same, but you're kind of doing kind of what the step two CS, which they're getting rid of pretty soon, is, but in question form, because you're doing these case studies that kind of, I suppose, would be similar in that aspect. I think that's the idea behind them. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up here pretty soon with our second part, and we're definitely going to have to do a third because we still have so many questions to cover. But I'm going to leave the audience with this one. And this is a question I hear all the time on physician finance type podcast, but what do you do as far as like finding a place? You're moving to potentially a new state for this residency. Do you rent? Do you buy? How do you even approach that 
and the commute, all of these factors have to play a part in your first year as a new resident. For me, another thing that I did in the latter half of my fourth year was I read The White Coat Investor, which I would recommend to anybody and everybody. I tell everybody about it. It's basically a blueprint for setting you up for financial success as a future doctor. I would recommend that everybody reads that at some point, ideally in like their fourth year of medical school. But if you want to read it earlier, it's not a problem. But so so that's one thing. And the reason that I read that is because, you know, I had no background or training or anything like that in, in finance. Like I did the science thing all the way through. So that's one thing. As far as the determination of like, do you rent or do you buy? It's really a personal decision. My wife and I didn't want to deal with owning a home. And we also knew that we were only going to be here for three years. And so like the return on investment uh, just might not be there. Although Austin is like really a booming economy. Like it's not as guaranteed in just a three-year time window as it might be in, you know, let's say a five, a four or five, well, probably five to seven year time window. But there aren't that many training programs that are, you know, five to seven years. And pediatrics certainly isn't one of those. So that was another consideration. As far as where to live in general, I would probably say live as close to the hospital as you can. But that's just my personal preference. Not having to worry about, oh my God, am I going to run into 40 minutes of traffic on the way to work is very nice. So I literally live within walking distance of the hospital. I think that's a great resource and the White Coat Investor book, but also he has a podcast. So you can probably just go in your podcast player and type in, you know, rental versus owning or something like that. And it'll show up because I know he definitely does cover this in a lot of different episodes in his material. So obviously it's going to get much more into the financial weeds than we're going to right here. But I think that is a great place to leave the audience and the next episode which we're going to have you back on for, we're really going to cover more of the other aspects that you need to consider past just, you know, the first couple of days, the intern year. And there are a lot of other challenges that we need to discuss. So I think this is a great place to leave it. I'm just going to say thank you again, Greg Rodden, for joining the show. Hey, well, thanks for having me back, man. I really appreciate it. The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.